This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Chiesi is a family-owned, research-focused pharmaceutical company and as a sustainable company accredited with both a B Corp and Benefit Corporation status, Chiesi is making global changes that benefit patients, providers, and healthcare organizations with forward-looking and impactful initiatives. Chiesi appreciates the integral role that clinical pharmacists play in patient care and are proud to support this community. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and whoever you are listening, thank you. Now, today's episode uh, is one that should certainly hit home for quite a few of us. Um, Brent Reed joins the podcast to discuss burnout and well-being with a focus on us as pharmacists and us in healthcare. So, Brent, in a previous life, was a cardiology pharmacist professor at University of Maryland. Now is using his master's degree to help pursue a PhD in organizational sciences. This this uh, topic that we're talking about today um, is, you know, Brent, Brent understands the impact and importance of it because he's literally shifted his career to try to focus on this. So. We're so lucky to learn from Brent, not only from his experience as a pharmacist, but what he's learned in his new career. Um, this is a a really awesome episode in terms of talking about things of like, how did we get here? How to define it? Uh, burnout. What um, is it too late if we're already experiencing it? What's the relationship between well-being and burnout? What's our foundation of burnout prevention? Uh, he does a goes through his five-step process for work design change and then kind of ends with what, you know, let's help be proactive. What are some short and long-term fixes? And, you know, we talk about how it can feel very doom and gloom at times. And I I actually think that this might uh, elucidate and kind of show that there are steps and things can actually get better. Um, we just have to have coordinated efforts. We'll be able to get into all that here uh, very shortly. So, Learn tons in this episode, hoping you all do too. So let's get started. And very, very excited uh, to welcome today's special, special guest, Brent Reed. Now, Brent has a master's degree in industrial and organizational psychology and is currently a PhD candidate in organizational science at UNC Charlotte. You can find him on Twitter or X at Brent N. Reed. Brent, how are you? Welcome to the pod. Appreciate you for taking time to join us today. Well, thanks, Nick, for, uh, for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation today. I've been really looking forward to it. So for those listening, they hear the name Brent Reed. They're like, wait a minute. It's kind of like you got that little like scratch. It's like that name sounds familiar 
in the pharmacy world, but I I may not be able to put my my tongue right on. So, Brett, fill the listeners in in your I guess you'd say previous life. What were you doing as a pharmacist before you kind of came into what your role is now as a PhD candidate? Yeah, so probably what people are, are most familiar with me from is, you know, before making this transition, um, I was a, a cardiology uh, practitioner. So particularly in the area of advanced heart failure, I worked at the University of Maryland Medical Center. And for most of uh, that career, uh, I was a faculty member at the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy. And yeah, definitely underselling Brent, such a, an, an amazing cardiology mind, not only with research, but writing review articles, chapters, all these different things. Um, you know, our paths crossed a couple of times in the, in the good old crab state of Maryland. So when we were thinking about trying to do kind of a well-being and burnout kind of episode, especially in this is what I call the dog days of residency, right? Like if we're talking well-being and burnout, January and February is kind of key moments. Um, and we kind of stumbled upon the fact that this is essentially, right, a how this topic kind of influenced you. So talk to us a little bit about how this topic on burnout and well-being, how did this influence your career change? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a big shift from um, what I was doing. It, it, during my time in practice, I started to become really interested in the organizational factors that I thought were affecting our ability to provide patient care, things like leadership, uh, teams, the experience of, of workplace stress. And as I started to learn more about those topics, I, I sort of just stumbled upon the field of, of organizational psychology, uh, which is you know one of the, the several disciplines that kind of study uh, these topics. And, and so I got my feet wet in that master's program that you mentioned earlier. And I just, I absolutely loved it. I just saw there were so many connections to our experiences in healthcare. And I'd originally planned to apply that knowledge to my existing career. Um, but I think like many people, uh, the pandemic caused me to, to do some soul searching. And fortunately, I was I was at a place in my life where I could go back to school um, full time. So that's what led me to to, to go and pr- pursue this PhD in, in organizational science. And, and the goal of this program is uh, to help organizations implement practices to to make work a, a more positive and fulfilling experience for people. And so people who graduate this program may study a, a variety of different topics, leadership, teams, um, diversity, equity, inclusion. And my specific area of focus is workplace stress uh, and burnout. And I think anybody working right now can have some sort of relation of the feeling of of burnout and that your job is stressful and things like that right and we'll we'll kind of talk a little bit about how some of the things as as pharmacists both your experience and just pharmacists in general how that can kind of lead into it but i kind of want to set the scene with some would argue, right, that our burnout and well-being, it hasn't always been this bad, right? That maybe we've reached a, a breaking point. How did we get here? Is this something else that we can blame on COVID? Or did COVID just shine the spotlight on on pretty glaring issues that were already there? Yeah, I, I think you're right on the mark there. Uh, COVID uh, certainly contributed to, to where we are now, but I think it mostly just 
accelerated some problems that were really just brewing under the surface for for many years. And I think one that has affected a number of different sectors, not just healthcare, but but particularly healthcare, is workload. Like our workload has just increased in terms of both quantity and complexity, right? It's not just the the volume of patients that has increased, it's the complexity of their medication regimens, the the systems that we have to navigate in order to coordinate their care. Um, We're precepting more students and residents, conducting more research, there's more administrative duties, you know, the list goes on and on. And I think things just kept getting added to our plate slowly over time. And it was probably difficult to notice at the time, but I think there, there comes a point when all those small incremental changes that that workload simply becomes unsustainable. And I think that's where we are now and why we're seeing so much burnout across the profession. Kind of break this up essentially into like two big parts, which is like, burnout and well-being and we'll talk about the interplay of them but let's let's talk about burnout here for a second um and when we think about like specifically burnout within healthcare within our profession how do we define it and why are we talking about this why is this such a big deal why is this a problem that that literally you're changing the focus of your career to try to work and, and improve Yeah, well, I think that's a great question because burnout, I think, gets used interchangeably with a variety of different terms and and concepts. Uh, Burnout is a prolonged work-related state of mind that is uh, characterized by feelings of exhaustion and having negative attitudes towards your work. Things like cynicism, disengagement, uh, disillusionment. And it's a big deal because even though burnout is a psychological experience, it's associated with a a wide range of harmful consequences for both individuals and organizations. It it impairs our job performance, uh, increasing the risk of of things like medication errors, adverse events. Uh, It increases the likelihood that we want to quit our job. And there have been a number of of publications out recently talking about uh, pharmacists leaving their jobs, leaving the profession entirely. Uh, And that's that's in part due to to burnout. Uh, It affects uh, anxiety, depression, increases the risk of suicide. Um, But it also has physical effects, too. Um, Burnout increases the risk of everything from uh, musculoskeletal aches and pains to diabetes and and even heart disease. And I think kind of the next big thing is a lot of what you described there sounds like stress. And all of us, right, have come back and had stressful days, crappy days, days you come back and you just want to complain about work, complain about your boss, etc. But what's the difference between stress and burnout? Because even though those symptoms sound similar, right, I think there's a, a breaking of the road where they, they, there's a dichotomy between the two. Yeah, I think a helpful way to distinguish the two is to think of stress as as a short term process, whereas burnout is a a longer term outcome that that can emerge when we have uh, prolonged exposure uh, to stress. And so we experience stress any time that we face a perceived threat and and that can initially manifest as as pressure or even physiologic changes like increases in heart rate and, and blood pressure. But one of the amazing things about humans is that we have this this capacity to adapt to even high levels of stress in the short term using things like 
increased effort, planning, um, where stress becomes a problem is when it never lets up or when we don't have enough time to recover from those stressful experiences uh, that, that you mentioned, that extra effort that we have to expend in order to tackle those stressful experiences. And so over time, that accumulated exposure, that's what results in burnout. Now, how do you, how does your, how does the design of your job or your, you know, your work structure What's that relationship with burnout? Because it feels like some of the things we can help, but some of it feels like, in a sense, it's a little out of our hands. Yeah, so when I was describing um, burnout earlier, you know, one of the things I really wanted to emphasize is that this is a work-related uh, state of mind. You know, when you look at the, the research on burnout, a study showed that it most commonly results when there is an imbalance between the demands that are placed on us uh, in our job and then the, the resources that we have to deal with those demands. And so job demands can include things like workload, like I mentioned earlier, but also things like time pressure, so the amount of time in which we have to, to accomplish our tasks. And then on the flip side, job resources, these are elements of work, and they're, they're usually uh, psychological in nature. They're things that help us achieve goals or can maybe uh, buffer the harmful effects of those demands. So things like autonomy. So can you make decisions about how you do your work, when you do your work, where you do your work? Uh, another example, social support. So how much support do you get from your boss or you get from uh, your coworkers? And where work design comes in is it's about making changes to that work environment to better rebalance those demands and resources. So can you reduce those demands? Can you offset those demands with additional resources? If you can, that reduces the risk of burnout and can actually improve people's uh, experiences at work. But here's the rub. Uh, most frontline clinicians don't have the, the power, don't have the influence in their organizations to make some of those substantive changes to their work environment. And I think that's really why we need uh, healthcare leaders to, to step up and, and lead the charge on this issue. Yeah, wow. You certainly sound, so you, when you describe that, that sounds, I, I heard so many pharmacist specific things, right? Of making something out of nothing, um, having your plate completely overloaded and somehow completing it all, all those things, right? So I feel like, you know, and we'll get into that a little bit, but it feels like our profession may be uniquely positioned to be experiencing some of these. Now, when, when we're talking about like leaders or, um, people that can like help make change. Are you referring more to like someone's manager or are you referring more to like our C-suite board of directors um, like that high up? I think it's all of the above. Um, now, let me first say, I think we can all make some small changes uh, to our work, like, you know, changing up the, the order in which we tackle our tasks. Um, that's often referred to as job crafting. And, and there is some research to suggest that those small changes can reduce uh, burnout. But, you know, most of us can't say, you know what? 
I'm only going to see this many patients in clinic today, or I'm only going to write this many notes and then I'm done for the day, or, you know, I'm precepting or I'm working on this administrative task and I'm just not going to respond to that urgent message from a physician. You know, we, we don't have the power to kind of make those changes. Those are changes that really require an organization leader to step in and, and restructure the workflow, the work environment, and, and the type of leader that needs to step in. It, it really depends on, on the type of changes that are necessary to um, that workflow. Now, that doesn't mean that clinicians can't play a role. I, I think they do play an important role in that process. I think the ideal scenario is having frontline clinicians and organizational leaders working together to, to figure out what some of those solutions are and, and what might work best. So as you talk about burnout and we're talking about pharmacists in general, keeping in mind, right, a lot of people listening are are maybe critical care, emergency medicine focused or trained, right? But the profession of pharmacy, right, extends huge. So do all of us pharmacists, maybe we just focus in the hospital too, will all of us have the same drivers of burnout? Like, is so, you know, we can kind of all meet, target the same things and tackle it that way. Well, some of the, the broader categories, I think, will be similar for most pharmacists. Um, you know, earlier I, I talked about workload, and I think most pharmacists would say they have an excess workload, perhaps even an unreasonable workload, but that workload is going to look different from one pharmacist to the next. So for one pharmacist, it might be you, know, you just have too many orders to verify. Um, for another, it might be having too many clinic appointments and and that's preventing you from fulfilling your precepting duties or your administrative tasks. And, and I think that's unfortunately why there's no silver bullet to, to burnout. It really takes a process where, you know, leaders and, and frontline clinicians are, are working together to identify, you know, what are the specific drivers of of burnout in your organization and how can you address those? And I think, I think pharmacists are uniquely challenged here because, you know, we don't have provider status. And one of the biggest things is, right, you want to integrate into your team. You want your team to love, especially when you finish residency or when you're in this new hospital, right? What's the biggest thing? got to make sure your team likes you got to make the nurses like you all those things so how, do, how does that happen it's by answering those random questions it's by doing random things and by you it's it's a slippery slope because yes you do become invaluable to the team but you're gone for three days and you suddenly realize how invaluable you can feel right and so it's, it's like love me less please no but in <laughs> in all seriousness though I think I think that's why this is such a unique challenge is because not only are there unique perspectives and you know what your issues were as maybe a cardiology clinic pharmacist versus an emergency medicine pharmacist at the big level one trauma center you're having maybe same burnouts but completely different issues and how you're getting there right so the solutions are going to be completely different now as we talk about burnout if you're feeling it, like if you're, if, if someone's listening and they, they're hearing some of these symptoms, like if you're experiencing it, is it already too late? Is this like ICU delirium where the emphasis is on prevention and then once you get like, and there's nothing really to do in treatment or, or if you're having these signs, like where, where are we in terms of what we can do with those? I think you provided a, a great example with ICU delirium. I think like any condition, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Um, so that's definitely the, the ideal approach. But 
just because somebody is experiencing burnout doesn't mean that all hope is lost. Um, you know, many of the strategies that, that you hear about most often, things like mindfulness meditation, expressing gratitude, those can certainly help with some of those short-term symptoms of burnout. But the key is if that imbalance of demands and, and resources persist, those short-term um, strategies, those, those aren't going to be enough. You know, we really have to address those underlying work elements if we want to see sustainable improvements in uh, pharmacist well-being at work. And, and studies show that when you address those work elements, you can see improvements in burnout um, you know, within weeks to, to months. It's not a, you know, like I said, it's, it's not that all hope is lost. You talk about, you know, um, well-being at work. And I think that's kind of a perfect transition into talking about well-being. And so what would you say is the relationship between well-being and burnout? How do they play off of each other? Yeah, I'm really glad that, that you asked this question because I think this is another scenario where it's kind of a couple of very related concepts that sometimes get used uh, interchangeably. Um, and unfortunately, I think that sometimes hinders our ability to address either one uh, of those issues. So there's definitely an inverse relationship between burnout and well-being. But well-being is a it's a, a broad concept. It's a, a sense of joy, a satisfaction that we can experience in a number of different domains in our life, our physical well-being, our mental well-being, social well-being, on and on. Workplace well-being, it's just one of those dimensions. And so when we're addressing burnout, it might indirectly improve some of those other domains of, of well-being, particularly if if work's preventing us from doing things like exercising or having a fulfilling relationship, um, but it's not intended to address those other domains. And that relationship goes uh, goes the other way too. You know, exercising, getting enough sleep, those are things that are going to improve our physical well-being. They're not going to directly impact our experiences at work, like tackling those, those job demands and, and job resources. I like that you highlighted that because... I think, I think those things like, you know, working out, maybe you had a really good trip to the sauna the day before those could give you little bursts, right. And probably get you through one to two days, but you know, just being fit, isn't going to help get you through, you know, a, a job that is setting you up to be burnout. So I like that you're kind of clarifying the two. Now, what can we individually do from a work-life balance perspective to help with this because hand up this is literally when when I do like annual evals work life balance is something that I still put on there it's so hard it's something that from from learner to seasoned clinician I think all of us struggle with them yeah, we, we could probably do an entire episode and just uh, work-life balance. Um, I think one general strategy is uh, to try and figure out, you know, what are your preferences for maintaining some of those work-life boundaries and then, and then trying to find ways that align your preferences with your actual experiences at work. Now, I think your, um, your listeners are probably familiar with kind of the two broad categories of, of how people manage their, their work-life boundaries. You know, on, on the one hand, you've got segmenters, people who prefer to keep uh, work and life as separate as possible. And then on the other end, you've got integrators, um, people who prefer to blend the two. 
And I think most of us are, are probably somewhere in the middle and we just lean towards one of those two um, poles. But really the key is not whether you're a segmenter or an integrator, it's whether your actual experiences at work align with what your preferences are. Now, unfortunately, segmenting that's the harder of the two because there's so many ways in which work just seeps into um, our lives outside of work and it will take up as much of our lives as we let it. Um, now, there are certainly some individual things that can help things like, you know, taking your work email off of your, your mobile device, taking notifications off of your phone, things like that, um, using your commute home as a transition period. So starting that 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 process of psychologically detaching from your work while you're on the way home helps to find a, an accountability partner. So maybe somebody else at work who is also a segmenter who wants to do a better job can hold you accountable to maintaining some of those, those boundaries. But again, I think kind of the recurring theme here is there are things that organizations can do to support your efforts to, to segment or to manage your, your work-life boundaries. So maybe it's a, a policy on after-hours communication. So if you get that, that email at 7 o'clock at night on a Thursday, what is the expectation on you of, of what you're supposed to do with that? Like, are you expected to respond? Or do you have kind of the space to step away, to disconnect, and then, you know, respond the, the next day? So um, a number of organizations have policies on, like, how do you handle a situation like that. Another example is a, an on-call program. So giving clinicians the ability to truly disconnect from work and not have to worry about that, that late night page or message from a physician, you know, there's someone there to, to triage that and you, you only get reached out to if it's really a problem that nobody else can handle. I want to dive into something there because um, I think that I love the idea of having, you know, someone kind of holding you accountable. But at the end of the day, if you're working to be less of an integrator, you have to make that choice for yourself, right? That person's not there when you're getting a phone call or text or something like that. And if there are people who get email, work email alerts, what are y'all doing having those notifications on? Oh my gosh, I just got anxiety just hearing that. Like, and part of it starts at the top, right? Part of it starts with with us as pharmacists who are either precepting or setting examples of really setting the scene there. And I think sometimes we don't do a good job of um, peeling the curtain back. And it's like, oh, yes, I'm doing this publishing, but I have two days a week where that's what I'm doing, right? I do scholarly activity. So I think that there's enough differences where if you're not making a distinction, if you're a leader, a preceptor, mentor, what have you, I think part of it is your job too to help try to set the stage for that and make that the the way to go. Because if you're sending emails at eight and it doesn't say anything, of course a resident's going to think they're going to have to respond to that, right? Because you're sending it. And, and so I like that you pointed that out, that there are things to do, but I think that um, we have to try to set a, an example for us who are kind of, who have been out in practice and are doing these things. Now, I, I can't help but say, right, when I hear a lot of these things we're talking about, how many of these problems are self-inflicted? Meaning things that we do to ourselves as pharmacists, because I'm a pharmacist, sometimes I am too, but we could be our worst enemies sometimes in this, in this battle. 
Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, there's certainly an element of that. And, and I was certainly guilty of that myself from time to time, you know, taking on that extra research project or that, that volunteer leadership opportunity that I really didn't have enough time to do. I think because, um, you know, pharmacists, you know, they're often underappreciated for their expertise, their, their contributions to patient care. And I think for that reason, many of us feel like we do need to prove ourselves by going above and beyond, taking on some of those extra responsibilities. But, and this is a really important caveat, I don't think that we are the only ones to blame for that. I think that in many cases, we take on those extra responsibilities because they are um their hidden expectations of the job. So as an example of that, um, the accreditation standards for residency programs, um, one of uh, the eligibility requirements for preceptors is that you must role model professional engagement. And so that includes things like service professional organizations, presenting research at conferences, publishing in peer-reviewed journals. And so if you are required to precept at your institution, meeting those qualifications, like that's technically a part of your job description. Uh, and so that means that your institution should account for you meeting those qualifications as part of, of your workload. And so it's not just, you know, we're doing this as sort of a professional development. Sometimes we're expected to do that just to fulfill the, the basic expectations of our job. This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative pharmacologic therapies for over 85 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the clinical pharmacist community and the patients you serve. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. I think it's a perfect lead-in because a lot of us love and enjoy it, but I feel like precepting and teaching can feel at times as a direct contributor to burnout and I feel like it's a lot of what you say there where it's like hidden tasks and it's like yes your job with your you know with your hospital your health system your school pharmacy is precepting but then you need to do x y and z and they're not they're not accounting or letting you do those things to be successful in a sense so why does it why does it feel like that can be a direct contributor to some of these things we're feeling yeah so uh, Precepting and teaching, those are definitely examples of increased workload, and we could certainly just chalk it up to that. But there are at least a couple of other reasons why those duties in particular can contribute to burnout, even if they're also like personally fulfilling, like it feels good to, to teach and, and to precept. And so we can get some you know sense of, of joy out of that. But there are also some reasons reasons why they can contribute to burnout. Um, one is um, precepting, teaching, it's an entirely different work role. Like we have to switch an entirely different set of skills, abilities, behaviors, attitudes, things that are different than what we might be doing in our patient care roles. And simply making that switch is a drain on our resources. But, but more than that, we often experience what's known as role ambiguity, which is when we're uncertain about how much time, how much effort that we should be spending on precepting or teaching compared to our um, patient care roles. Because oftentimes those aren't spelled out in our job descriptions. Uh, sometimes those can even blend, uh, bleed over into role conflict where there simply isn't enough time to meet the expectations of, of all of these different roles that we're expecting 
expected to, to hold. And because these role stressors, those are beyond our control, they can be especially exhausting experiences. And the second um, issue that can contribute is that uh, precepting is a form, is often a form of emotional labor. Um, and, and that can be um, a particularly taxing type of work and more so than some of our other tasks. So some examples, if we're having a frustrating day at work, you know, we can't take that out on our learners, right? We still have to put on a happy face, or maybe we have a learner where we're really disappointed in their performance, but we know that being overly critical of that performance can be demotivating or can negatively impact their learning experience. We have to dial it back. We have to find alternative ways to express that feedback. All of that is emotional labor, and that doesn't get accounted for when we agree to take on one more student or one more resident uh, to precept. I've never heard it used as that term, but I think that's a really good description. And the other thing I think that makes precepting so challenging is, you know, if you're doing consults, for example, they're almost all going to follow the same pathway, the same process, right? You can do it. But when you're precepting, everyone's different, right? And, and how you have to go about them, how they influence your day is going to be completely different based on that person. And like you said, Part of our biggest job, right, especially those who are teaching and precepting, is truly the emotional intelligence and and all and dealing with all of those kind of stressors and issues. So um, I haven't necessarily heard it said like that. I really like that description. But I want to think of the opposite perspective because I think a lot of times there may be some people in schools or things or even just out that hear a lot of doom and gloom. They hear like everything is being bad and and. I love being a pharmacist and I don't think that everything is is completely past the point of no return. But when we're thinking about it from that opposite perspective, how can we help to get the ball rolling in a positive direction for these future pharmacy generations? Yeah, that that is such a tough question because I think it's such a a tightrope that um that we have to walk. Like I think on the one hand, we know that Expressing negative attitudes about our work, uh, it's contagious, right? That toxicity that we can feel and we can express out loud, like that can spread to the people around us, including the learners that that might be um, with us. So I think that we have some responsibility to, to protect learners uh, to some degree so that they're not burned out from the day they start their career or even before they start uh, their career journey. Um, but I think the kind of corresponding balance to that is I think we also have a responsibility to um, provide learners with a, a realistic preview of what what their job is actually going to be like, which includes some of those downsides that maybe don't get talked about uh, as often. You know, we often like to to portray the profession based on our vision of what the profession could one day be um, rather than what it is to, to currently work as, as a pharmacist. And I think that that sometimes can set up our learners for failure because, um, you know, they kind of have these inflated expectations of what it's like to be as a pharmacist um, that sets them up for failure for when they get out there and see what it's really like in the current practice landscape. And so I just think there's there's a tough balance there that we need to, to strive for and kind of protecting our learners from some of that, those toxic feelings that we might experience. Um, but also, you know, giving them a, a realistic portrayal of what it's like to, to work as a pharmacist. Wow. Incredibly well said. And I completely agree with what you're saying of the shielding piece of it. You know, if you have those three afternoon meetings, you know, 
Take your learner with them, right? Or talk through, yeah, this is a frustrating day. I, I have to squeeze in this as I'm, as I'm, and I think, I don't know, I'm not throwing, you know, my, I had great mentors and things, but I don't think a lot of them when we were um, growing and going through school and postgraduate training, I don't know if that was as much of an emphasis talking about the less desirable things and more about the vision of things. Now, when we're talking about, as we kind of shift here, and we're talking about burnout, well-being, and when we think about prevention, why is organizational change at the foundation of this? Why does it truly have to start at the top or near the top for these meaningful changes to happen? Yeah, that, that's such a great question. And I've really wrestled with the best way to, to describe this because I, I think there's still a, um, a hesitance or maybe in some cases even a reluctance to really view you burn out as a systemic problem, as a problem that's originating from the work. And, and so I, I've tried to figure out, you know, what is an analogy or what is a way to kind of to explain that? And I think one thing, and, and this comes naturally to me um, as a former cardiology <laughs> practitioner, um, heart failure, I think, provides such a great analogy for explaining this. You know, we know that that heart failure results when the heart's unable to meet the metabolic demands of the body. And we, for many years, our primary approach to managing heart failure was treating the symptoms, right? We give, we give loop diuretics, we give vasodilators to treat things like pulmonary congestion and lower extremity edema. But even though patients might have felt better with those therapies, they didn't help them live longer. They didn't keep patients out of the hospital. It wasn't until later on that we learned that those symptoms had an underlying systemic cause, this neurohormonal activation, and when we started developing therapies that targeted that pathophysiology, things like ACE inhibitors, beta blockers, not only did we see patients' symptoms improve, they also started living longer and staying out of the hospital. So like heart failure, burnout results when we're unable to meet the demands of our workplace. And so while we have strategies that are very effective for treating the symptoms, those short-term effects, things like mindfulness meditation and, and gratitude experiences, those aren't going to have a long-term impact because they don't target the underlying pathophysiology, that imbalance of job demands and job resources. And so we instead have to develop the strategies that do um, things like work redesign where we can see sustainable improvements uh, in burnout. Otherwise, we're just going to see the symptoms progress to things like turnover, where we see more and more people leaving their job, if not the profession entirely, because burnout and turnover, they share a very similar underlying pathophysiology. You just made our, all your cardiology colleagues so proud that you still um, are able to use heart failure analogies in in your new in your new line. So strong work. Uh, you you understood the assignment today. Um, now, your description of like changing a work design, even just saying it, even even walking through the idea of it in my head can feel overwhelming, daunting, and just honestly feel like, all right, well, there's no chance. Like, I'm, I guess I'm just going to quit right now. Talk us through a, a kind of five-step process or something that we can use specific to the context of pharmacy, because I think that 
when we think of well-being and things, and if you're looking at non-medical or healthcare-related ideas, they don't necessarily fully cross over because we work in a really unique um, profession and setting. Yeah, you know, earlier I said there's no silver bullet uh, to burnout, uh, which is kind of an unfortunate uh, downside, but there are some straightforward frameworks for thinking about how do we make changes to uh, the work environment. Now, again, as I sort of mentioned earlier, I think it's important to say like this process has to be led by those who have the power to implement it. So in healthcare, that's going to mean managers, other organizational leaders. But again, ideally, they should be working alongside frontline clinicians the, the entire way. So I just want to sort of say that up front before I kind of go through these these steps. Um, so the first step is uh, to empathize. So listening, attempting to understand, like, what are the problems that people are actually facing before we start implementing solutions? I think one of the reasons why we've not seen much progress on the burnout issue is we started to just implement solutions before really understanding the problem. We jumped to things like resilience training and, and meditation without understanding why those don't address the underlying problems. We have to start by listening to people, trying to understand their experiences. The second step is to, to then define. So use the information that you learn from listening to people to put labels on the underlying problems. And usually those are going to be some form of excess demands or deficient resources. So as an example, earlier we talked about precepting. So maybe the issue driving burnout at your institution isn't necessarily having too many learners. Maybe it's that the precepting workload is not being equitably distributed across the department. So as an example, pharmacists who are primarily working in operational roles or administrative roles, they often get overlooked as potential preceptors, but they're performing very important functions that are necessary for a pharmacy department to work. And so that is an opportunity for students and residents to learn. That is an opportunity for um, you know, distributing the precepting load. So that's the second step, defining. The third step is then to um, ideate or to brainstorm some potential solutions to the problem, um, ideally continuing to get input from those that are affected by it. So returning to our example of the precepting workload, one possible solution to that might be um, creating a precepting dashboard for the entire institution so that you can see what is that distribution of precepting workload, where might there be some opportunity so that you don't just have a small group that's really you know, taking on the full burden of uh, precepting. Now, the fourth step is to then prototype or to begin piloting uh, solutions. And the, the goal here is to experiment, uh, to learn before you, you implement that initiative across the entire department or organization, or maybe implement it for a longer period of time. So for that precepting dashboard example, maybe you pilot it in a few areas before you scale it out to the entire department, or maybe you um, try expanding your precepting pool to a few willing volunteers that are in operational or administrative roles before you make it an expectation of everybody uh, in those, those positions. And then finally, uh, the last step is to evaluate. So take a step back and look to see, did that solution, did that pilot, did it improve burnout or did it at least address the underlying issue that you thought was contributing uh, to burnout? And, and here I think it's 
It's so important that even if the solution doesn't completely fix the underlying problem, burnout may still improve because people are being listened to, they're given a voice, they're given an opportunity to participate in making their workplace a more positive, fulfilling um, experience. And so that alone, that that is a job resource. So feeling that, having that experience can improve burnout, even if you didn't completely tackle the underlying problem that you thought was at the heart of burnout. And when you think about making these changes, right, I, I definitely thought, you know, it sounds daunting and overwhelming, but when you break it down, into its simplest form, I mean, it really is essentially like implementing anything. This is like if we're implementing like a unit-specific protocol. We listened or found something. We used it to identify, like, like walking through this, this is just a, a larger example of it, right? These are things that we do as, as you know, pharmacists, especially those on units and things every day, right? It's just thinking about it from a different perspective. 100% agree. Yeah, we we are in the problem solving business. This is a different different type of, of problem. So what options, there's probably some people listening who say, yeah, but my manager doesn't care. My bosses don't care, right? They know this is an issue. That's definitely not happening. Like what options does someone have if you if that's how you feel? Because in that scenario, sometimes you can feel powerless. And I understand what you're saying of, when no steps are happening, then it just feels like people have given up on you or this idea that it's not a problem. So how, what would you say to someone who, who maybe has those feelings? I don't think that's probably a, a rare thought in today's world. Yeah. So let, let me first say, you know, because I do have a lot of, of uh, current and former colleagues who are managers. And, and so let me just say, I, I do think managers, most managers do care but they might I agree not for the record. I agree. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they might not understand um, how they can help. And I think the profession is partly to blame for that because I think we focused so much on personal approaches to burnout that I think many managers probably see it as, you know, this is just a personal problem. This is just something that everyone needs to work on as an individual rather than seeing, you know, kind of some of these underlying systemic issues and, and how burnout is originating from the work itself. Now, that's not to say I, I think that it's, it is reasonable that, that many clinicians feel that they may not have a supportive supervisor or a less than supportive um, supervisor. And so for them, I think there are a few options. Um, one, I suspect you're not alone at your institution. Um, I imagine there are probably others that are feeling that way too. So maybe having a conversation about some of these things with, with your coworkers can be a good place to start because that helps illustrate how it is more of a systemic problem and not just a personal issue with one or two people. And we know there's, there's power in numbers. Uh, a second thing I think you can do is, is when it comes to talking to your manager about burnout, I think it helps if that conversation starts to shift towards what do we think some of the causes are? And more importantly, what ideas do we have for addressing what we think some of those underlying causes are? Now, let me say, I, I don't think that those those conversations are easy. One of the things you know, I'm trying to, to kind of help with those uh, conversations. Um, so uh, Andrea Sakura and Brian Murray are putting together a special issue on kind of issues in critical care practice for 
AJHP, and they, they asked me to write an article about addressing burnout in critical care pharmacy from a, a work environment lens. And so the piece um, will be forthcoming in that issue is it's written for both frontline clinicians and their, their managers, other organizational leaders, and kind of lays out what are some examples of potential problems, um, what are some possible solutions to address those problems, you know, from a, from a critical care lens. So at the very least, I hope that it can at least spark some conversations about how burnout can be addressed through changes to the work environment. I want to hit on something you said, which is talking about it. And I think, again, I'm going to, I'm going to highlight us as pharmacists. We're not great at asking for help or talking about when we need help or creating, right? I think a lot of times, if you're asking for help, right, the problem has gotten big. And and I think sometimes we think of it as like talking about those things or asking for help as a sign of weakness. Nope, I need to be the pharmacist that asks no questions, that knows everything, which A, doesn't exist. <laughs> Every single, no one knows everything, right? But um, I think as pharmacists, I think talking about it is the biggest thing because I think you would be amazed at how many of your colleagues are experiencing possibly some of the same things in your own institution. And that's where maybe some of you all, right, you talk about little mini strategies you've done, or you come as a group, right? Strength in numbers. If if one person comes with these issues versus four out of your five preceptors coming, that's a bigger deal. So I think I, I just wanted to reemphasize talking about it, which seems so simple, but I think it's a step that gets missed in a lot of these things as we're talking about what leads us up to well-being and, and burnout itself. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think as part of that conversation, um, kind of shifting the focus of it, because the easy thing is to think about what it, what it feels like to experience burnout, to complain about, you know, this is how I feel, or this person's not listening to me, or I'm experiencing this challenge. I think the difficult part is how, how we shift that conversation to, to focus on, okay, We've identified some underlying issues. What are some things that we might be able to do to fix those work-related problems so that we no longer feel this way? And you mentioned the AJHP-themed issue. Put a pin in that, listeners, because there'll be more to come. There'll be a, a, a whole episode talking about some of those things. So um, I love that tease. It's going to be an unbelievable issue. Uh, so glad that this got highlighted in it, but much more to come because that's going to be unbelievable, this AJHP-themed issue put together by Andrea and Brian. Now, as we kind of lead from, you know, we were talking about individuals in our role and we kind of step into thinking about how do we make some changes at the top. So why do organizations need to care? Why do we need to put these changes as a priority? Because, you know, there may be people hearing saying, well, the bottom line is the bottom line, right? Like what, why is this so important to our, our future as, as pharmacists or even just healthcare in general? You mentioned the bottom line, and, and there certainly is a business case to be made. I'll come back to that in a few moments. But before you even get to the business case, if organizations truly value patient care, as, as many of them profess to do, they should also value the well-being of the people who provide that care. Um, you know, as we've talked about, the, the consequences of burnout aren't just psychological. They're mental, emotional, physical. And if we leave those unaddressed, burnout compromises patient care. So this is a patient care issue. When you think about the cost, you know, the cost of turnover alone 
should be enough to take burnout seriously. You know, when you have to replace somebody who's left your organization, it can cost up to twice their salary to do that. Once you account for the loss of productivity, the cost of recruiting, hiring, training the replacement. So even if you just look at turnover alone, that is reason enough to take burnout seriously and, and try to address some of the underlying problems um, thought to lead to it. So in terms of work redesign efforts, um, what are ways that we can be proactive? Are there things we can do to help get in front of this? Because there are some people that love their job. They have the perfect job. They have the great ball. They, they have it set up great. So, you know, how are, for those who maybe are in those awesome scenarios, are there things they can do to maybe be proactive to help kind of put roadblocks in place to prevent this downstream effect. Cause like you said, you know, people leaving and turnover, I also think of the downstream effect of like, then you have cross coverage and then you have these people that are stressed out and getting more workload. You're not only covering their units, you're training the new people and you're taking over precepting their three layered learners, right. And all those different things. So how can we be proactive to help prevent some of those things? Yeah, so I think I think it goes back to those conversations that, that we talked about earlier. And, and I think when we originally framed it, we were talking about, you know, how do you find other people who might also be experiencing burnout so that you can have some power in numbers? But I think there's also ways that we can learn from each other um, in terms of the positive, fulfilling aspects of work, maybe some changes that people have made to where they do feel like their uh, their um, work experience has improved. They, they find it engaging and, and kind of learning about some of those strategies that have been made to, to improve that. Um, so I think, again, a lot of this at the heart of it is is having some of those conversations, just getting the ball rolling to where you get to a a critical mass that can lead to these work work design uh, related challenges. And I think that has to involve managers and other organizational leaders. Because like I mentioned, um, you know, at the end of the day, we only have as clinicians, there's only so much power you have to make substantive changes to your work environment. So engaging in those conversations with your leaders Framing those conversations around the problems and how to solve them, I think, can be a great first step to being proactive uh, in leading work, work redesign efforts. As you've done more learning, studying into this topic, right, I'm sure you know more than you did as you kind of went this path and, and had this kind of be an interest. What are, do you have favorite papers or resources um, you know, about well-being or burnout that you like to share with others or that you think would be would be good to highlight? Yeah, I think I think one of the biggest challenges to, you know, sharing more of the science on on, on how we address this is many of the the journals where a lot of this research is published, you're not gonna find it in PubMed. You know, you have to use other databases to to find that kind of kind of research. Um, so I think there is a little bit of a barrier. Uh, there to sharing some of the science, but uh, one exception, uh, the National Academies of Medicine, Engineering, and Science, they have been a real leader on this issue, and we're really one of the first 
organizations to kind of shine a light on burnout being a systemic issue rather than uh, a personal one. And so their landmark report, which I think is a couple of years old now, um, it does an excellent job of outlining the numerous ways that organizations can address these issues from a work environment standpoint. And it's written specifically for uh, healthcare leaders, you know, using language that that managers and other leaders, um, you know, can, can understand. And so um, that uh, publication, as well as the National Academy's website, where they have a number of supplemental resources to not just say, you know, here are the problems, but here are some resources to assist in actually making some of those changes. I love that you highlighted that because I think um, so many of us, you mentioned that um, from a manager perspective, I think a lot of us have very little manager training when we initially get in that role, right? You are a clinical specialist. You might have been for a decade. You kind of go into administration. And it's not that you don't understand some of those things, but it's just different, right? When you're leading versus being a part of it, it's a little different. And so having those resources available and things I think is is really important because I think there's a difference between a good pharmacist and a good manager. And I think sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't necessarily do that. But I, I love that we have some papers and resources. Now, Talking about when we got here, a lot of what we said is more longer term things, right? Things that we're setting up, implementing, evaluating. So are there more short term things that we can do to help or are changes for the better something that are really just going to take a, a, a lot more kind of time, effort and energy? You know, it's not that these issues needed a long time to develop. I think it just it took us a long time to realize it. It's like that, um, that analogy of the frog in boiling water, right? If you, if you throw a frog into boiling water, it's going to jump out to save itself. But if it's in lukewarm water and you slowly turn up the heat, it's not going to notice that change in temperature until it's too late. And so I think it's harder for us to notice, you know, when we're asked to precept one more student, conduct one more audit, right? One more policy, you know, those small incremental changes are very difficult to notice. But then when you take a step back, it should be no surprise that so many clinicians are experiencing burnout. But just because our responsibilities kind of grew in that, that gradual insidious way doesn't mean that our solutions have to follow that same pattern. You know, we can turn off the heat. Maybe we can sunset that policy. Maybe we can conduct that audit a little bit less frequently, Maybe now's not the not the time to start that new program uh, unless the institution is willing to fund another full time position for it. You know, really, the, the point is sometimes the solution isn't about adding something. It's not about adding a, a resiliency training program or another module or a well being initiative. Sometimes it's just taking a good look at all of the demands that are on our plate, figuring out what is something that we can take away. What an awesome parting message, because I think sometimes we just need to say no. I think sometimes we're like, we're like the Grinch at the end. Our hearts are three sizes too big because we always want to help, right? We, we don't think about us. We think about that person, right? That, that learner that needs that research project, right? What are they going to do if I don't help? We have to start thinking about ourselves because we get burnt out. We're going to be gone. We're not going to be able to do any of it. So um, Mm -hmm. saying no, I think is... It sounds so easy, yet it's so hard as I'm literally talking it through, right? Because if it was easy saying no, we'd probably be doing a little bit more. I think that's why you've got to have that 
that organizational leader, that manager, that C-suite leader who's willing to back you up on that. And, and so that you don't feel like you're the one saying no, that you're letting the learner down or letting, you know, your physician colleague down or the nursing unit. It's that, you know, a leader comes in and says, no, we have to make this this workload more sustainable or we have to make these expectations more sustainable. And, and again, illustrating that that critical partnership between um, healthcare leaders and frontline clinicians. Well, Brent, this was this was unbelievable um, talking about not only um, some of the issues of burnout, but also well-being, why pizza parties don't necessarily treat some of the symptoms that we're feeling. Um, for all the listeners, definitely reach out to Brent. Let him know um, what an awesome job at Brent N. Reed. Now, only question that I have, right? So you're, you're still in ACC town. You moved from Maryland to... North Carolina, Charlotte. So how has that transition gone? Are you, are you still a Terrapin? Have you officially like, has your blood become North Carolina blue? How does that work when you move down into the Carolinas? Well, you know, growing up in the South, um, you know, I've been a long time, a long-term Tar Heel fan. So it really was not that much of a transition to, to being one uh, again. And, and certainly, you know, being here in Charlotte, there's no shortage of, of Tar Heel fans around here. Every time Duke loses and Angel gets its wings, we will end with that. Uh, Brent, thank you so, so much for for all this discussion on well-being and burnout, giving us some strategies, not only that we can do in the short term, but also things that we can think about and kind of help down the road. So greatly appreciate all your uh, time and expertise. Thanks for joining us. Thanks again to Brent. Uh, reach out to him at Brent and Reed. Um, it, the reference list, uh, this episode is going to be more like a resource list. So it'll have the you know, National Academy of uh, Sciences, a systems approach to professional well-being, the paper that, that Brent mentioned, as well as things from ASHP, SECM, and then the National Academy of the Medicine Collaborative on Clinician Well-Being. So a few things there in the uh, re- reference, a.k.a. resource list, uh, this time. So reach out. Let me know what you think at pharmacy to dose, TO to dose. Uh, email pharmacy to dose at gmail.com or, of course, the website pharmacy to dose.com. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters. This is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional health care services, including pharmaceutical advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmaceutical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal health care professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call 911, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the Critical Care PRN disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.